What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Welcome. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group and the host of the What to Know podcast show. We are recording here live at the W2O Digital Health Brunch at J.P. Morgan. And I have the luxury of speaking today with Marcus Osborne, who is the VP of Health and Wellness Transformation at Walmart. Welcome, Marcus. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm really excited to do this because I think we're on the precipice of seeing a tremendous amount of change in the healthcare space. And certainly when you see companies like Amazon and Walmart getting into the game, you know, it's, you know, not that everyone wasn't already paying attention, but you know that it's about to, to change quickly. We heard earlier from Salesforce and Google and, and others. Um, I like to start these conversations a little bit about history, and you had kind of maybe one of the cooler or uh, high-profile jobs coming out of college. You were an intern at the White House. Uh, I'm guessing it was maybe during the Clinton, uh, Bill, Bill Clinton days. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit of, about what that was like to get out of college and jump into an opportunity like that. Well, my, my claim is that I was the uh, I'm the second most famous White House intern of all times, and uh, I was actually there. Uh, I, had, I had a guest right down the hallway from me who was who I think she owns the, uh, the she owns the trophy for being the most famous intern of all time. Uh, what was it like? Uh, it was uh, it was rough. It was, if, if any of you worked in investment banking, I actually worked more hours than you, and I got uh, I made nothing. So it was a real sweet gig. Um, no, but uh, in reality. It was it was for me to make you know I was a uh, I was just a good old boy from Kentucky I didn't really sort of know anything and hadn't been anywhere and to uh, be in the the seat of power and sort of see how things get done and they actually do get done as much as uh, we 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 all love to sort of bemoan uh, what happens in D.C. Um, there's a lot of good people doing good work um, and to see the work that you're doing actually have impact. And so for me, it was, it was an extraordinary uh, first job, but what it, uh, what it made me come to appreciate more than anything else, which explains a little bit about why I'm doing what I'm doing today is, um, you know, I love, I love entrepreneurs. I love, uh, I love people who, who are trying to build the next great thing. But what I'll tell you is platforms matter and scale matters. And so I, I got sort of addicted to uh, groups being in positions that I could reach not one or two or three people, but try to reach tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people. And, and so certainly that's a job where you reach hundreds of millions of people. Well, it's interesting because I think you missed it at the beginning, but Mona Siddiqui, who kicked us off, she's the uh, chief data officer for the Department of Health and Human Services. I asked her a little bit tongue-in-cheek why she chose to be a data scientist in the government, especially today, and she said exactly what you said. It's the scale that you have in terms of access. Right. So relevant to that, um, before joining Walmart, you had a senior manage you were a senior management consultant at Alliance Consulting Group in Boston, my mm -hmm. hometown, um, and then you served as the CFO for the Clinton Foundation HIV AIDS Initiative. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming there's a connection between your first job and that, but tell us a little bit about what that was like and you know tackling that issue at the time and you know what you learned from that. Well, I, it was it was sort of connected in the sense that I was working for a consulting firm, and and when the president had left office, he was trying to figure out what he was going to focus his energies around, and so um, we got hired to actually answer that question. So we did answer that question. We laid out a set of things. We said, these are what we think are the big global priorities that aren't being well addressed. Um, HIV, the the HIV 
issue globally was one of them. If you looked at the time, you know, in places like South Africa where you had over 3 million people who were HIV positive um, and you could, you know, you had less than 50,000 who were getting treatment, um, that just felt like an embarrassment that, that we as, as, a, as a world hadn't figured out how to, how to address that and, and recognizing the impact it was going to have in those countries and around the world. Um, so for me, um, the opportunity to kind of work on that, what, what, it, what it also sort of taught me was, um, you know, we, we went into it and a lot of people said, hey, first off, what, you're crazy. We were trying to figure out how we could lower the price of, of drugs for, for people who were HIV positive and at the time. Uh, if you were in South Africa, the, the cost of a treatment annually of, of the cocktail that you would need uh, was around uh, between $2,000 and $3,000. And as you, when, and when people in that country are not even remotely making anywhere near that amount of money, and you sort of expected people to spend four, five, six X what they make in a year to pay for the treatment, it's just not possible. And the real question is, these were, these were drugs that in many cases had been off patent for a number of years. And it begged the question, why are they so damn expensive? And um, uh, what was interesting was we started on this journey. We said, how are we going to get the cost down? Um, how can we, and if we can get the cost down, can we find novel ways to fund it? And the short answer is uh, we, we, along with other groups, were able to. I think within the first 12 months, we got the cost down to, uh, for, for a number of treatments to under $150 per person per year. I think that number dropped to under 100 within another 12 months. I think it's now down to 60 in some of those countries per person per year. It's now reasonable for, for people like the Irish government or the Swedish government, the Japanese government, to help fund major uh, HIV and now TB and malaria treatment programs around the globe. Um, but what it also sort of taught me was, uh, you know, what, what can happen if you find ways to lower the cost uh, of care that when you do it fundamentally transforms societies. And so um, we saw that certainly in, in Haiti and South Africa and Rwanda and Mozambique and, uh, and Vietnam and other places. And so uh, and it certainly influences. Um, and, it, and we also learned that if you, if you can take out the waste and supply chains, you can really drive down costs. So, um, here we are today trying to apply that to the U.S. healthcare system. I was just going to say that's probably as good a segue as we could have asked for because you do work at Walmart now. Um, I don't know is the Walmart's the first place people think about when they think about healthcare, uh, but actually this is not a new space for Walmart. And I did a little bit of research and it looked like over 10% of your merchandise sales come from health and wellness products. <clears throat> and you sell several uh, dozen generic prescription drugs for $4 each, a program launched in 2006. So talk a little bit about your legacy in the space, and then we'll fast forward and talk a little more about what you're focused on today. I mean, certainly we have, a, you know, I think our legacy has been, um, we, we, we've historically not viewed ourselves as a healthcare company. We, we, we view ourselves as we're in the business of just taking care of people. And, and I think where we started was in um, some of the core healthcare therapeutic products. So you think about in pharmacy and you know going back to 2006 um, we were just a just you know just a regular old run-of-the-mill pharmacy and really no, there was nothing that we were doing that was anything different or spectacular relative to anybody else in the industry and then somebody had this kind of crazy idea and they're like again why are the why are drugs so expensive like why is it you know why do they it, it, some of these things cost you know a tenth of a cent per pill so help me understand why a 30-day supply of an item where the, for, you know, for 30 pills that you're talking pennies of cost, why are they selling, why is it, why are they selling for 150, 160 bucks? And the short answer is, um, 
they, they, they shouldn't be. And so, um, you know, what, for us, the experience that we've, you know, in some way started in 2006 and then continued has been about how do you act, is it possible to take the things that people need in healthcare and figure out how to get them at low cost and not just at low cost, ridiculously low cost. And that's sort of the challenge. That's really where we find ourselves today. Um, and it's influenced everything that we've done from work in our pharmacy, um, even getting involved, you know, uh, in 2010 on the health plan side, we, we partnered with Humana and said, why, why are the premiums for a Part D plan so expensive? Why are they 30 or 40 bucks a month? Why can't they be 15 bucks a month? And why can't it be the same price for everybody everywhere? And we were told that's just not possible. Come to find out it is possible. Um, and, you know, we think about that, that product, it's really interesting. You know, we helped Humana launch that product. Everybody, they thought maybe a couple hundred thousand people would enroll. Um, the best, the best minds thought at best maybe a half million enroll in the first year. I think 1.1 million people enrolled in that plan. Became the second or third largest PDBP plan that exists. So for us, it's sort of uh, the stuff that we've been involved with is really it's it's part of this journey that we've been on to say, you no, know, we can play a role in healthcare and. By God, we're going to figure out a way to lower the cost, and we don't really care whether everybody likes that. That's what we're going to be about because we think if you can lower the cost of healthcare, it'll fundamentally transform how people consume healthcare. It'll enable more people who are not getting the things they need to get the things they need, um, and that that will have an impact that uh, will be significant. So that's that's really that's really the journey we are on. Well, kudos for doing that. I will say, because I know I'll have some of our uh, pharma and biotech friends listening in, uh, sometimes people do forget in this world of you know, pressure and pr on pricing, uh, there is a lot of research and a lot of the clinical trials that you know, they do have to recoup costs sure. for. But that said, I know that it's good that there are people you know, pushing and stress testing what are the ways that we can bring costs out of the system. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about more about your current role. So you have a unique title, mm -hmm. um, the VP of Health and Wellness Transformation. And according to your bio, you're focused on furthering Walmart's stated goal of improving the healthcare industry in the U.S. by increasing access, quality, and affordability in the system for consumers. We already talked a little bit about the drug pricing piece. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, maybe the clinical piece and, you know, giving, bringing access to the people in your stores. I'm assuming that's part of your remit. Yeah, so I think it's, I think it's really what we're trying to do is, is quite simple. And I th for some reason, uh, from a, from a, political perspective, from a policy perspective, from a systemic perspective, we seem to, people, uh, the, the, the organizations and systems seem to be ignoring what the, you know, the, the typical American is sort of saying. And there, there's kind of two things that we, we sort of hear, and we've heard it, and we've heard it for years and years, but for some reason it's not resonating in the way it should. Number one is that if you ask an American what is the number one, what is the biggest area of angst and concern in your life. It's not about jobs or employment or housing or the economy. It's not about terrorism or immigration or any of the things that if you watch the nightly news or MSNBC or Fox News, they would lead you to believe is important. The number one issue is healthcare. Number one, without a doubt, it's healthcare. And it actually, frankly, has been. And you say, well, what is it about the healthcare that's such a big concern? And there are five things. But three of them are the same. And the first three things are exactly the same. It's cost. The cost of health insurance, the cost of pharmaceutical products, the cost of medical services. And after that, it's convenience. And then the last is access. And access doesn't really mean what you think it means. Access really around why is, 
why is healthcare so damn complex? Why does everybody try to make it so complex? Is there something that I really need? Why do I have to go through so many hoops to get it? Why is it hard to kind of figure out how to use my benefit? Why, 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 why? Um, and from our perspective, uh, too often it, it appears as if groups, when they attempt to address and create solutions, seem to be missing the mark. That too often we're trying to create solutions that work for everybody, that work for the payer, that work for the provider, that work for the product manufacturers, pharma and the device guys, and that work for the patient. When in fact, healthcare is a consumer business. It's the same as retail. And that at the end of the day, the only groups, the only entity that matters is the individual, is the consumer, it's the patient. And so a lot of what we're focused on is to say, what does it actually mean to build not a consumer-designed or consumer-centered system? How do, you, how do you actually create a consumer-only system? a system that actually consumers want to sort of engage with, that, that you can bring forward solutions that enable them to get what they need um, and that, and they can get it at a price they can afford, um, and they can get it in a way that they don't feel overwhelmed or confused. And so a lot of that's what we're focused on. And, and so what you'll see, you know, and, and there's a lot, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful for what is sort of coming, particularly in 2019, and I, and I believe you'll, You'll see some interesting things coming from us. But what I hope you, when you see those things, I hope what you'll read into it is that it's really about this commitment to say, we're going to help, we're going to lower the cost of, of services. Like why, you know, getting access to primary care or dental services or um, behavioral health services, which we've been the first retailer to actually move into and in helping people get access to low-cost therapy and access to psychiatry. Um, through a, a partnership that we have with Beacon Health. Um, what, you know, how can we make that more accessible, more convenient, and, and deliver that at a lower cost? So that's, very, that's what I'm focused on. I, I actually, right, I've been given, um, I have been given a gift um, where I get to every day wake up and figure out how to get people what they want from a healthcare perspective in a way they want it, and I have the, the full means and resources of one of the largest companies in the world, uh, you know, a company at least in the U.S. who, you know, in any given week, more than half of Americans visit us in our stores, you know, 85% of Americans visit us 25 times or more in a given year. Uh, we're the largest real estate holder in the United States outside the federal government, we're, and our real estate sits where people are in the communities where they exist. So I'm given that, I'm given that gift, I'm given that opportunity to leverage that platform to address the, what are what is the number one issue that is facing consumers today is how to how to get the health care that they need and that they want and deserve well given that gift and given that unique position you have you're uniquely qualified I think to help give us some perspective on with all this data you get about your customers and all I'm sure this partner information you get in the research mm -hmm. what does healthcare look like over the next five ten years yeah, so I think I'd say there's probably, that's a, that's, a really, you know, that's a really good question. In some ways, I get asked that a lot, and I'd say if I really, really knew what that answer was, um, I'd be a trillionaire, uh, right? Um, I guess what I would say uh, when I hear it, I think there's kind of three things that I think are going to happen. I think one is you, you have seen an enormous amount of innovation and technology that is going to fundamentally, that is going to change the paradigm of, of cost, convenience and accessibility. So um, that's going to dramatically improve uh, consumers, particularly in the U.S., ability to access care. Um, and 
and so, you know, one example I'll sort of highlight is what you're seeing on the diagnostic side. The idea that I can now go and get, you know, uh, some test run or some set of tests run, and I get them done with a very small sample and that on a, on a machine that's sitting right in front of me where that machine's going to generate results in 8, 10, 12 minutes. So that I and and be able to do it where the cost of those labs is going to be in the in the single digits, a few a few bucks. Um, we're our, we're we're basically there. We're nearly there. And how is that going to sort of transform, you know, care in America? And I think about what's happened, you know, with and I use the example of automobiles, and I compare your car to your your own to to humans. I mean, it's it a car is a complex system. Humans are are more complex than cars, but we're still complex system. Well, if you look at what sort of occurred on the on the car side with um, you know over the last 30 years with the advent of of, of the you know oil change locate like Valvoline and and others that now you can go in, they plug a little thing in your car, and they can run all these readings immediately and tell you, hey, there looks like something that's sort of going bad on your car. You really should sort of go in and get this replaced or changed. What's sort of been the impact of that? Well. The average vehicle today has, is on the road twice as long as was it was 30 years ago, simply because of all this kind of these these innovations in systems and and diagnostic technologies that have been become pervasive in the market. I think we're going to see the same thing from a human perspective. I think the ability to drive pervasive access at a low cost with real-time results around diagnostics is going to fundamentally change because the more we know, the more we act because we've seen it ourselves. So I think that's probably uh, one thing. I think two is you're going to see a much more robust level. It's, this is not the sort of this is not your mother's retail clinics that you've seen, which barely do anything other than treat pink eye or strep throat or or the flu, but actually seeing uh, full scale, broad levels of care being delivered in non-traditional settings in in retail, in schools. I think there's some interesting companies that are starting to do things around you know, being able to provide fuller levels of care to, to students uh, um, early on. So I think that, that's, that's going to happen. Um, and I think, the, uh, I think the last is that we're going to start to see a sort of transitioning from this, you know, as you think about what health plans and health insurers pay for, recognizing that um, it's, you know, it's not just, if you want to get, if you want to have somebody have good health and be engaged in their health. It can't be just about paying for doctor's visits and paying for drugs, but it's going to be about actually how do you build the right kind of environment and, and system that gets people to kind of encourages them to buy and be able to afford healthier foods or to, to you know, uh, buy ex exercise equipment for their home or um, start to do more of these things that, and also start to address problems that I think uh, you would never assume a health insurer would, would address. Doing things like helping me if I'm having to care for an aging parent better care for my mom or dad. Or if I'm going through a divorce, helping me deal with my divorce and come out at the other side not, not sort of depressed. Well, this sounds like a weird thing to have a health insurer try to support, but, but what I tell you, what we know is if you do that, you're going to be much more likely to have those individuals be engaged in their health. So I think those are, those are probably at a high level what I see. I, I think at, to summarize what I'd say is what I think will change, what I think is going to change over the next seven, ten years is I think people are going to feel like 
they're increasingly going to feel like they have much more control, that they're going to be in charge, um, and that there's, there are these tensions against that occurring. But I think ultimately technology and, and other disruptors are sort of coming in are going to continue to kind of push that. And what you'll see in, in sort of 2030 is a, an environment in which uh, where, where, the, where the U.S. healthcare system is truly a direct-to-consumer system, and it's not one sort of defined by, this, uh, by, by all these other entities, but it's going to be one that's much more about just the individual and what they need. So at least I hope it is. Well, thank you for sharing those, and that's a sobering thought that, you know, in 11 years we're at 2030. That seemed like it was 100 years off. I have one final question. I sure. usually like to ask a few, but I want to be sensitive to time and maybe squeeze in one or two quick questions. Sure. I like to ask all my guests on the show, imagine you're stuck on a deserted island. You can only take one album with you. Don't worry about the technology. Which album would you pick and why? Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a Clash fan, so I'm going to say London Calling. Um, I'm a Clash fan because it, it, uh, if, even if you don't like the Clash, uh, they wake you up, and I've uh, I've also couched my uh, I've couched my two sons. If you ever meet a Maxwell or a Tate Osborne, and you ask them who's the greatest band of all time, I have even though they don't really believe it, I've 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 coached them to to say the Clash. So I ha I feel like I would be a bad dad if I made them say that, and I didn't come on stage and at least say that's that's the album I pick. Well, and I think Rolling Stone has agreed that that's one of the top 10 albums of all oh, time. So you could do that. worse than oh, this, there right? Go. There you go. Uh, well, anyway, uh, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O, host of the What to Know podcast show. Uh, we're here at JPM at our digital brunch. I've had the pleasure of spending the last 25 minutes or so with Marcus Osborne, the VP of Health and Wellness Transformation at Walmart. Thank you so much, Marcus. Thank you for having me. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.